You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is episode 23, Krupp Steel Part 6, Gustav Krupp, or Who Are All These People? Today I'm recording from four Potsdamer Plots in Berlin. This episode brought to you by Otis Elevators. When you rise, we shine. In 1944, Gustav Krupp was 74 years old. He had gone senile with some form of dementia, and now was always accompanied by servants. An older family member with dementia is always a trial, and the family had become accustomed to his strange comments. But one night, something very different happened. One night at dinner, Gustav Krupp had a very specific hallucination. Gustav slowly rose to his feet and pointed a shaking finger toward the shadowy end of the giant dining hall and whispered, Who are all these people? And for the rest of the night, he kept seeing people that were not there, no matter what his family members said or did. Now, maybe it was just dementia, although hallucinations like this did not afflict him later, Maybe Gustav had seen the thousands of new people who were now living in Essen as wardens of the state, and of Krupp, in the concentration camps. Or maybe Gustav was seeing the ghosts of those who had been killed by Krupp arms, or who had already died in the camps, as the family's blood birch kept getting redder and redder. Now going back in time a bit, to right after World War I, In case anyone wasn't certain, Gustav Krupp felt very strongly about the Versailles Treaty. He said, Everything within me revolted against the idea that the German people would be enslaved forever. If Germany should ever be reborn, if it should shake off the chains of Versailles, the Krupp concern had to be prepared. Gustav felt that he could not shirk his duty, which he described as through years of secret work, scientific and basic groundwork, to be ready again to work for the German armed forces at the appointed hour without loss of time or experience. He believed that the greatest achievement of his career was that, after the assumption of power by Adolf Hitler, I had the honor to report to the Fuhrer that Krupp stood ready after a short warm-up to begin the rearmament of the German people without any gaps of experience. The blood of the comrades of Easter Sunday had not been shed in vain. Here, of course, Gustav is referring to the blood of the comrades slain by the French in 1923, not the massacre of his own workers by the Freikorps in 1920, both of which occurred on Easter Sunday somehow. And, at the end of the day, for a homunculus like Gustav Krupp to say that the greatest achievement of his career was to help Hitler rearm the German people. I say, why? We should believe him on that. So you remember how the SPD, the German Social Democrats, were? You remember how they were opportunists who did not oppose World War I? And then they were stuck, after the war, signing the Versailles Treaty. And then they also ordered the army to put down the revolts across the country. Well, on top of that, they were also volunteering their own party members to be unpaid assistants to the Allied Control Commission in factories all over Germany, acting as hall monitors to make sure that Germany did not rearm. 
Like, I'm not even in favor of Germany rearming, but I think that's a pretty cuck move. Like, nobody ever appreciates a snitch. And the SPD was, like, intentionally positioning themselves as the kid in class who asks if the teacher forgot to assign homework. It's just out and out the SPD taking one big knee after another, just L's left and right. It's like they don't even want to win. And apart from that, this is dangerous for them because they were, these, these unpaid inspectors were being killed by the Femen, which is to say the political assassinations carried out by the Black Reichswehr. When caught, the Weimar courts were astonishingly lenient towards these Femen. If the SPD were powerful, they would have at least exacted justice, but again, they were failing even their own party members here. So we've mentioned before about the secret rearmament program. It's come up a few times, right? Like in the Hitler episodes and the Who Financed Hitler episodes. But it was Krupp more than anyone else who is actually carrying it out. Gustav Krupp took an almost childlike glee at hoodwinking foreign correspondents who would sometimes come to visit to, you know, pretend like they're real investigators and to try and see what was really going on. There is a long list of foreign correspondents who were either duped or, you know, let themselves be duped. As William Manchester wrote, a representative of the Christian Science Monitor marveled at the ease with which designers of cannon were adjusting to railroad production. Pieces taking its revenge at Krupp's, wrote the Manchester Guardian, one can have no hesitation in affirming after a visit at Krupp's that everything connected with war industry has been scrapped away. The Review of Reviews was delighted to find that a ridiculously small enclosure in one corner of a great shop is all that can now be devoted to the manufacture of ordnance. The publication Living Age observed that the 1919-1920 balance sheet of Friedrich Krupp contains the following memorable words. During the reported year and for the first time in two generations, the Krupp works, according to the disposition of the Versailles Treaty, have produced no war materials. And the Scientific American, at Gustav's insistence, publicly apologized for giving its readers the impression that gun mounts were being illicitly shipped from Essen to Brazil. Other writers grew lyrical. One dispatched a lavish description of the Stom House, Friedrich Krupp's respected shrine and the only tangible evidence to evoke the tradition of a mighty name. While others like a correspondent from the Literary Digest, charmed his readers with an account of his reception by an old watchman smoking a Rhineland pipe and smiling a wistful smile. The Digest man told how he toured the Gustav Fabrik with George Carl Friedrich Bruno Bauer, a Krupp director. Germany's past is buried here, he quoted Herr Bauer in conclusion, and Germany's future lurks likewise in these old furnaces. The Krupp executives would bribe journalists with a good meal, it's just hospitality after all, and they would give them lots of flattery, and thereby they got lots of good free press from these journalists. Even crazier though, none of them ever realized or made the connection that their cameramen always walked away with film cartridges that were overexposed. That's because Krupp engineers would shine an infrared ray on their camera lenses because they were worried that pictures that they were taking might be examined by an ordnance engineer. 
you know, someone who might actually know something, unlike the journalists. And an ordinance engineer could take one look and see right away that they, that Krupp was absolutely rearming right under everyone's noses. Industrial espionage, I'm telling you, it's very interesting. You know who was not fooled by Krupp's claims to be abiding by the Versailles Treaty? My man William L. Shearer, journalist and author of the book The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Sure, we've had our differences, but the man wrote a great book of history. He knew something was up, and so did a British industrialist named William Stevenson. Maybe you've heard of him. U.S. Army intelligence, not the bumbling fools that they're sometimes represented as being, they also understood the signs. They conducted an investigation on Krupp's newest patents. I quote from the investigation. The investigation disclosed a rather striking circumstance circumstance in view of the conditions which Germany is supposed to observe as to disarmament and manufacture of war materials under the treaty obligations. Basically, U.S. intelligence found that of recent Krupp patents, 26 were for 26 were for artillery control devices, 18 were for electrical fire control apparatus used in armaments, 9 for fuses and shells, 17 for field guns, and 14 for heavy cannon which could only be moved by rail. The U.S. Secretary of War made the, made the investigation available to the press, and the press ignored it. People sometimes forget that one reason why... The world appeased Hitler for so long was because they themselves were guilty for Versailles. Also, as mentioned before, but Germany and the USSR signed the Treaty of Rapallo in 1922. This had all kinds of effects, political, economic, but one of them was military cooperation, training, and rearmament, right? And the chief liaison for the secret military side of this for the secret military program, was Karl Radek, who was one of Trotsky's chief lieutenants. Karl Radek worked closely with General von Schleicher and General Ludendorff. Those generals have come up in prior episodes. All over Eastern Europe, Krupp was involved in various projects, but many of these activities are not well documented. Or at least, we don't have access to the documents. As a side note, in researching Karl Radek for this episode, I saw that for some reason, rather late in life, Karl Radek chose to de- chose to denounce Marcel Proust and James Joyce in Moscow, saying, In the pages of Proust, the old world, like a mangy dog no longer capable of any action what- whatsoever, lies basking in the sun and endlessly licks its sores. Then he compared James Joyce's Ulysses to a heap of dung crawling with worms, photographed by a cinema apparatus through a microscope. Which sounds pretty harsh, but, I mean, some people just don't take to modernist literature, right? But yeah, so Karl Radek had extensive ties to high-ranking German military officers and intelligence. So, when Karl Radek was later put on trial for treason... Just remember that it wasn't exactly far-fetched. The Moscow show trials were not all show trials, if you catch my meaning. Moving on. So, believe it or not, hiding the actual munitions being built was not one of the tougher aspects to German rearmament. 
Instead, Krupp found it difficult to hide their engineers and weapon designers. Gustav Krupp created several created several shell companies and rented a full floor in an office building in Berlin, where those guys worked for over a decade before they were eventually brought back to Essen. Their offices were right next to the Reichstag, like literally visible, like you could see the buildings half a mile away, and they kept all of their weapons designs locked up in safes. They obviously didn't get to do a lot of testing, but the team spent all of their time making new designs for various types of tractors, quote-unquote. They were designing light, medium, and heavy tractors, and they were sure to make sure that these tractors could pass requirements for transportation on railroad cars, on railroad cars and roads in Belgium and France. Because... What is a tank, ladies and gentlemen, if not a type of tractor? Also, as you might expect, the Krupp company was getting around the Versailles Treaty via their overseas subsidiaries and shell companies, like those in Sweden, Denmark, the Netherlands, and especially Holland. When the Krupp company started making full artillery pieces again, they were selling them to their Dutch shell company for storage. When Paris protested, they're not dumb, and they're not that far away. They, they knew what was going on. The Dutch refused to intervene in what was ostensibly an arm's-length transaction between two corporations. But of course, it was actually just Germany rearming illegally using shell companies. In 1926, the door cracked open after the Dutch sales, so the Krupp concern started manufacturing weapons for sale abroad. In 1926, the Dutch sales allowed the door to crack open, and after that, the Krupp concern started manufacturing weapons for sale abroad. This was less egregious on paper than Germany rearming themselves, right? So they started selling weapons and submarines to Brazil and Japan, then Spain and Finland and Turkey. Some of these submarines were early versions of the ones that the Nazis of the ones that the Nazis would later use in World War II. By 1927, Krupp entered a phase that they called black production, and they were now working openly on guns, tanks, torpedoes, armor plating, various components for these different things, and they started early rocket work. According to a Krupp memo written during the war, of the guns which were being used in 1939 to 1941, the most important were already fully developed in 1933, and many were completed much earlier. The basic principles of armament and turret design for tanks had already been worked out in 1926, and the Krupp factory began manufacturing tanks on a limited scale in 1928. Now remember, Gustav Krupp was the one who said, Politics is forbidden here, and he liked to pose as apolitical, simply an extremely loyal German. He still loved the Kaiser, and after the abdication, President Hindenburg was his guy. And Bertha Krupp snubbed Hitler and most of the Nazis socially at various points before, during, and after the war. Most of the Nazis were from, you know, the middle classes, or or the lower classes even. 
and Berta viewed herself as above them. When the Nazis started making gains, like in 1930, when they became the second largest party, Gustav Krupp simply did not understand the appeal of the Nazi party. As we know from the Who Financed Hitler series, the Ruhrlade, as far as we know, was pretty late to the game in supporting the Nazis. Not that it appeared to matter, because German heavy industry were destined to be the darlings of any right-wing party anyway. They didn't really have to vie for the support of the Nazis, right? Gustav Krupp did not like aspects of the Nazi platform. Like the plank that was later abandoned that read, We demand the total confiscation of all war profits. Which, were they serious about that, would have been pretty based, right? Gustav's director, Alfred Hugenberg, assured him that if Hitler got into office, Franz von Papen and I will handle him. Which, as we now know, is not quite how it played out. We, so, in this episode, we're talking about the Ruhrlada again, which came up in episode 10. The Ruhrlada being the secret group of German heavy industry that gave money to most political groups, right? And... As far as anyone knows, the first time the Ruhrlade gave money to Hitler was after the 1930 elections. But, what about the Krupp company, or the Krupp family? For one thing, we do not know, because the Krupp concern burned a whole bunch of records right after Germany's defeat in World War II. This is something we will talk about in the future. But, there are signs that the Krupp concern and the Krupp family did not get on board with the Nazis until around 1932. Or, at least, that's the first time that there are signs that Gustav Krupp began supporting Hitler, apart from the Ruhrlade's handouts, right? In March of 1932, an agent for the Foreign Relations Department of DuPont Chemical reported it is a matter of common gossip in Germany that IG Farben is financing Hitler. Other German firms who are supposed to be doing so are Krupp and Tyson. In January 1933, President Hindenburg named Adolf Hitler Chancellor, right? With Alfred Hugenberg as Minister of the Economy and Franz von Papen as Vice Chancellor. In a meeting between von Papen and Hugenberg, von Papen said, We've hired Hitler in what might be one of the most tragicomic misreadings of the political moment of all time. Like we talked about in episode 5, Hermann Göring had become minister without portfolio, the pretext being that he would preside over the reconstituted German Air Force, but in the meantime placed in charge of the police. This allowed him to stage the Reichstag fire, like we discussed, but it also let him shake down more capitalists than ever before, in order to underwrite what was to be the most expensive political campaign the country had ever seen. To wit, one week before the Reichstag fire, the newly elected Nazi leadership called several of its wealthiest men in Germany to the presidential palace. Gustavsk read, Krupp Bolin invited respectfully to a conference in the house of the president of the Reichstag on Monday, February 20th, six o'clock afternoon, during which the Reich Chancellor will explain his policies. Signed, President of the Reichstag, Goring, Minister of the Reich. Let's break down who was invited. 
There was Gustav Krupp, of course. There were also four directors from IG Farben, as well as Albert Vogler of the United Steelworks, who was also in the Rurlada. Reportedly, there were about 20 other executives from other companies as well. Hermann Göring introduced Hitler, as not everyone had met him yet in person. Then Adolf Hitler rose to speak. He said, We are about to hold the last election. He began, and he paused to let the full implications of that sink in. He continued, saying, Private enterprise cannot be maintained in a democracy. Reportedly, the rest of the speech kind of rambled, but Hitler was saying as clearly as he could that they were planning on eliminating democracy in Germany, as well as trade unionism and the communist threat. Hitler said regardless of the outcome, at the polls there would be no retreat. If he lost, he would stay in office by other means with other weapons. It's pretty hard to read this as anything but Hitler telling them, without being specific, that they were planning to set the Reichstag fire, then using emergency powers to end the Weimar Republic, which is exactly what they did. According to Dr. Yalmar Schott's testimony at Nuremberg, once Hitler gave this speech, Gustav Krupp rose and cheered him and expressed unanimous support on behalf of the industrialists. Then Goring got up and reminded them what the purpose of this meeting was. Goring said, and now gentlemen, pony up. Gustav Krupp led the way, pledging a million marks, and reportedly everyone else put down for a collective two million more. You see, I do a whole series on who financed Hitler, and what do I do but find more more Who Financed Taylor content. I can't stop myself. It's a sickness. So this meeting that we just discussed happened on February 20th, and then one week later, the Reichstag fire broke out on February 27th. At this point, most communist leaders were imprisoned. Then, Germany rushed to hold elections, which they did on March 5th, and some people have called these the terror elections. The Nazis hoped to suspend democracy after having won in a landslide, but they did not win in a landslide. Hitler and the Nazis had millions and millions and millions of marks. They had the backing of the state, they had Goebbels' propaganda machine going as hard as it could, they had the backing of Gustav Krupp and President Hindenburg and most of the industrialists of the country. And they had emergency powers that limited the freedom of the press, the right to assembly, and even impacting private correspondence. The stormtroopers were led off their leash, running wild, raiding SPD headquarters, and many, many incidents of street violence. Still, despite all this, the Nazis could only manage to win 44% of the vote. This meant that there was a surprisingly inconclusive result. They were thinking that they were going to sweep the polls and then suspend democracy. The result of this election meant that they had tw that they had 288 seats, and in coalition with Alfred Hugenberg's Nationalist Party, with 52 seats, that meant they had a majority, but not enough for the two-thirds mandate that Hitler needed to legalize his desired dictatorship. Now, that left them with a huge problem. 
they needed to bribe everyone to get through the legislation to get this dictatorship. And it was more or less directly due to the funds raised by Krupp and the other industrialists that the Nazis had enough to bribe everyone to get their dictatorship legislation pushed through. This was the first election that the Nazis had money to bribe politicians, and that's what they did. They bribed everyone they could, and they were able to pass the Enabling Act of 1933. And so it began. As far as we can tell, the Krupps sat out Hitler's march to power until the very end, but that last million marks got them over the finish line, in a very important way, too. When the Nazis finally seized state power and then enacted a dictatorship, they didn't immediately start in against the Jews. Not to say that things were good for the Jews at this time, but no, the first target of the Nazis was the trade unions, for two reasons. First, the trade unions provided much of the juice of the juice and political power to the SPD and the KPD, which the Nazis opposed. And the trade unions, of course, ran the unions, which the Nazis' donors opposed. So they were target number one. So on May 2nd, right after May Day, the Nazis had the police raid every single trade union office in the country. They confiscated all trade union funds and weapons and sent their leaders to concentration camps. That's right. The first people sent to the concentration camps extremely early on, 1933, were trade unionists. Yes, there were Jews in the trade unions, but they weren't singling out Jews not right off the bat. And attacking trade unionists first reflects the interests of the donors who made their victory possible. Shortly after this, the regime banned collective bargaining. Then they banned the SPD. No more German Social Democrats. In a short period of time, they had come for the communists, the trade unionists, and the socialists, something which Pastor Martin Niemöller's poem, First They Came for the Communists, might not convey very effectively, because in reality, first they came for all three right away. Then they came for the Jews later. Though, to be fair, the poem is still accurate and interesting. I'm not talking trash. Kristallnacht would not happen until 1938, although it was definitely a slow boil for the Jews, to be sure. To get a feel for how the rule of law was subverted very quickly in Nazi Germany, we have to talk about the Hitler Fund. What was the Hitler Fund? Why, it was a token of gratitude from the industrialists to the Nazi party. The industrialists who got what they wanted, the elimination of unions, and the SPD and the KPD, could thank the Nazi party by donating willingly, of course, and the Hitler Fund was set up to support the stormtroopers, the SS, the party staff, the Hitler Youth, various auxiliary groups, and the function of it was allowing businessmen to prove their loyalty. You know, outright bribery made legal. If you look at it another way, it was protection money. Then, in the spring of 1934, Hitler decreed Gustav Krupp to be the country's Fuhrer of the Economy. Which, I mean, can you think of a worse opprobrium than Fuhrer of the Economy? So, people who study deep politics know that it can be very instructive to look at where certain people are when certain deep events happen. For instance, when John F. Kennedy was shot by a mad lone gunman 
wink, it is very instructive to take note of who was in Dallas and who was, I don't know, maybe hiding out at the farm, a.k.a. Camp Peary, which was effectively a second Langley, despite having been fired from their job as director of the CIA. And then, of course, regarding 9-11, it's possible to track members of the Bush administration throughout the day, and there are weird missing absences, which perhaps suggest something, right? Now, you can do this for other deep events, and it's very instructive. It's never direct, clear evidence, right? But when someone happened or chose to be where certain things are happening, this can speak volumes. You're following me, of course. So let's talk about one of these deep events. Not long after Hitler proclaimed Krupp to be Fuhrer of the Economy, Hitler went to Essen to visit the Krupp factories. His visit was on June 28th and 29th. This was not accidental. During this time, Hitler was facing major opposition within his own party. Even though Hitler had at various points put down the left wing of his party, there were still calls for greater measures of socialism in the National Socialist Casserole. Ernst Röhm, the chief of staff of the stormtroopers, was calling for a second revolution. Not one month before, several stormtroopers under Rome's orders had interrupted a Krupp assembly line and delivered a speech predicting the second revolution. And as you might imagine, Gustav Krupp had complained to Hitler. Now when people talk about the Night of the Long Knives, sometimes they forget to check where Hitler actually was when he gave the orders to purge his party. Hitler was staying literally at Via Wegel, the Krupp mansion, when he gave the orders to purge these people, and this became the Night of the Long Knives. The Nazi party went on to purge and extrajudicially kill somewhere between 85 to 1,000 people, mostly all Nazis, including Ernst Röhm, but also including General von Schleicher, General Schleicher and General von Bredow, like we've talked about. Now, where Hitler was is a detail missing from Wikipedia, which, I mean, should you be surprised, but this detail speaks volumes. It says quite a bit about this purge. Hitler was visiting Gustav Krupp at such a crucial moment in order to handle him and keep him happy, and it certainly didn't hurt that he was, that he was in close physical proximity to such a massive source of power independent of the Nazi apparatus. Hitler backing Gustav Krupp and purging his own party, and Gustav Krupp backing Hitler when he was facing internal opposition. Why, that's the kind of thing that fuses two people together. And so it was. What can we learn from today? Gustav Krupp said that his life work was being ready to rearm Germany when the Nazis came calling, and I guess we should believe him. Then, I've made the point several times, the secret rearmament program was carried out by everyone. All political parties, including the SPD. It was not just a Nazi thing. Then we saw that Krupp was carrying out the black production. And it was a little game where they would push the envelope to see if they got in trouble, and each time they didn't get in trouble, or not meaningfully, they would get a little more flagrant. As well, there are always ways to get around something like the Versailles Treaty using international business. I am aware of times that Cuba got around the economic blockade 
with a series of shell companies, although I would argue that that's more of a wholesome application. The point is that this is not new, and everyone does it. Then we found more strong evidence that the Nazis were planning the Reichstag fire, something that I'm pretty much sold on now as a theory. Even if I'm not exactly sure what Marinus van der Lubbe's role was. Like, was he just a patsy? Probably. The point is that they told industrialists a week before, this is going to be the last election. And they probably had several different plans in place to make sure it happened. And they ended up going with the false flag attack to seal the deal. Pretty devious, huh? I sure hope nobody ever does that again later in history. Then, we saw that Gustav Krupp's funds were crucial for bribing politicians into passing the Enabling Act of 1933. He was relatively late to supporting the Nazis, but this didn't matter. The Krupps would always have a unique privileged relationship to the German state, whether it's Nazis or nationalists or really any government. Then we saw that the Nazis clamped down immediately on the trade unionists, the communists, and the socialists, both because they opposed them politically and because it was their donors' wishes. As a reward, they received money from the Hitler Fund, and Gustav Krupp was made the Fuhrer of the economy. Then, Hitler was at Gustav's mansion when he ordered the purge of the Night of the Long Knives, which is one of those less well-known facts that I think carries a lot of weight and resonance. Finally, let's not forget, at the beginning of the episode, that Gustav Krupp, under the influence of dementia, saw the ghosts of all those killed making his weapons, and the ghosts of those killed by those weapons. Now, I don't usually make judgments like this. That's God's place. But I'm certain that no matter your political beliefs, we can all assume that Gustav Krupp is now in hell. For sources, again, I used the Arms of Krupp, the House of Krupp, Blood and Steel, as well as the Devil's Chessboard, briefly for the Alan Dulles bit. Thank you for listening, dear listener. As always, if you like the show, check out the Patreon. Got some bonus content there. Some really cool stuff. Now, if you'll excuse me, I need to be on my way to Kursk, Russia. See you next week, and God bless. Durch Deutschland geht ein tiefer Riss, der spaltet die Nation. Ne Neuheit ist das nicht gewiss, doch von Interesse schon. Das Beispiel Krupp und Krause klärt den wirklichen Verlauf. Der deutschen Spaltung zugehört als Klassenfrage auf. Denn Krupp ist Monopolherr und Krause ist Polit. Das ist der Klassengegensatz, den jedermann versteht. Der Boss der Industrie im Club der reichsten Herrn Besitzt Fabriken, Zechen, die viel tausend Mann ernähren Als einer von zigtausend Mann steht Krause Tag für Tag In Krupps Fabrik zur Arbeit an, sein Stundenlohn fünf Mark Denn Krupp ist Monopolherr Und Krause ist Polit Das ist der Klassengegensatz den jeder Mann versteht.
was grausig kündlich produziert, ist mehr als fünf Mark wert. Der Mehrwert wird von Krupp kassiert, weil dem das Werk gehört. Und tausende Kollegen geht's wie Krause jeden Tag. Herr Krupp nimmt sich den Mehrwert stets als Kapitalertrag. Denn Krupp ist Monopolherr und Krause ist Prolet. Das ist der Klassen-Gegensatz, den jeder Mann versteht. Ist Konjunktur und angespannt der Arbeitsstellenmarkt, wird Krause Partner Krupps genannt, denn dann ist er gefragt. Doch ist der Wirtschaftshimmel trüb, die Auftragslage flau, dann droht den Krauses im Betrieb Entlassung, Lohnabbau. Denn Krupp ist Monopolherr und Krause ist Polit, das ist der Klassengegensatz. Den jeder Mann versteht. Die Spaltung hier in diesem Staat erklärt sich folglich so, was Krupp an Macht und Reichtum hat, ist grauses Risiko. Im anderen deutschen Staate, da gibt es die Krupp nicht mehr. Da sind die Krauses selbst für wahr die Herren der DDR. Damit sich Krupp die Wieder. Dort etablieren kann, schreibt Krause für die DDR, die Anerkennung.